Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your word and, and examine this and teach us what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you for the miraculous things you're doing with the people in our church and ask you to give us a wonderful evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Then answered Peter and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out, out of the clouds that said, This is me, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. So we're going to look at this uh, transfiguration event. And... It's six days after what the confession of Peter. And remember that in verse 21 it says, From this time on Jesus started teaching them that he must go to the cross, die, and be resurrected. So we're six days past that. He's been teaching them about the, the death and resurrection. And we've talked about how the disciples did not understand that until after it happened. It just made no sense to them. And so we're six days, and he says he takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, the, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. And, you know, people have wondered, well, why these three guys? <laughs> and it appears that Peter, James, and John are an inner circle for Jesus. And if you think about this, Jesus ministered to hundreds, if not thousands, of people all the time. But he just taught them. And it's very much like when a teacher has a church. They, they teach everybody in the church, and especially Sunday morning when everybody comes, and they just get taught. Then they have the group that comes out the rest of the, the, rest of the services, and they get the more in-depth teaching. They get, little, they get the times like this one where it's an interactive, you have a chance to ask questions. There's a little more personal time. And then there's usually two or three people that a pastor really pours into to try to develop leaders and other teachers. And they're the hand-picked ones. And this is, appears to be what Peter, James, and John are going to be. Uh, another thing that you can look at is Peter is the oldest of the disciples. Pretty much by far. He's in his mid-20s as far as we understand. Maybe even close to 30. So he's an old man in this group pretty much outside of Jesus. John is the youngest. And he's the youngest by far. Uh, we don't know how old he is, but he's, he's in his early teens. And then we have James, who is the brother of John, somewhere in his mid to, mid to late teens. Jesus picked a very young group of people to invest into. And it's kind of an interesting thing. This is why Peter is always the, the one who's kind of impetuous in, in, and everything. He's lived enough life that he says, I'm going to go for the gusto. You know, it's time to, it's time to do something. I'm not just going to sit here. And the rest of them are kind of still the young people. And most young people in a group of older people sit back and say, okay, what are the, what are the older ones going to do? How are they going to, to lead? 
And when I was a teenager, that's pretty much what I did. I hung out with the most of the most of the time with men, and I listened a lot, and watched. I went, okay, how do these men of God do things? And then when I would say something, they would all go, well, wow, how'd you learn that? I go, I've been listening. I've been listening to you guys. And this is why it's very important for us as older believers to take younger believers under our arms and just say, this is how you live the Christian life. This is why when I teach, I want to make it very much alive and real and say, this is not just theory. It is just not head knowledge. Too many, too many people in America that claim to be Christians, they know the stories in the Bible. They know all the different things, but they don't apply it. It's just a bunch of knowledge in their head and are not applying it to their everyday living. And this is why it's important for us to take that knowledge and move it out of just knowledge into this is the way I live. And then people look at you and say, boy, you sure live strangely because you don't believe the way everybody else does. And you go, well, thank you. You know, that's the way I want it to be. I want to be living for God. I want, it, I want what I do to be different from everything else. I want to be forgiving. I want to be loving. I want to be kind. I want God to be my defender. I want to be what he says, doing. And so we see this. Peter, very impetuous, loud mouth. He's, he's the first to jump in to the fray. You know, he's the one that told Jesus, you know, hey, you're, you know, I'm going to stand up for you. Everybody else is going to deny you, but I won't. And, you know, when he said that, he meant it. He really meant it because when the Garden of Gethsemane, he grabs a sword and he's ready to fight the guard that came to arrest Jesus. So Jesus was a little older than these guys? Jesus is a little older than them. 20s, late 20s. Jesus would have been at least 30 years old or he would not have been called rabbi. And he ministers for four years, so he dies around 33, 34. He might have started as early as 29. Uh, but he would, have been, he would not have gotten the title rabbi until he was 30. So he is, Jesus is the oldest. Peter is closer to Jesus' age. And the rest of them, they're pretty young. Uh, is John the same one who was baptized in the water? No. Okay. This is the disciple John. He's the son of Zebedee not the son of Zechariah. Uh, John the Baptist is dead at this point. Remember we talked about him dying several chapters ago, which means a month and a half, two months ago that we talked about John's death. So these are, these are James and John are the, are the sons of Zebedee. They're also called the sons of thunder. And they're, they're called the sons of thunder in Mark uh, 3.17. And why they're called the sons of thunder is because of, in Luke 9:54, they're going, Jesus, do you want to call down fire upon these people like the prophet of Elijah? And Jesus says, you don't even know the spirit you're, you're talking about. But they were very, they were very bombastic in themselves. They were, God, we, you have power. We, you know, because you have power, we have power. You want us to, you know, God, we're, we're ready to strike these people dead. <laughs> they're, they're coming against you. We're, we're ready to call God's judgment on them. Very much like Elijah. Elijah was a very powerful, fairly quick-tempered man, but he called on God's power. Moses, who we're going to see in this story, was a very quick-tempered man, as we've seen. He had a problem with his temper, and he was very loud and boisterous. So these, these disciples also kind of match up to the two people that are going to come and visit them. Peter is very much like uh, Moses, quick-tempered, strong, you know, ready to, ready to Act first and ask God, ask God later. And the James and uh, John, they're, they're ready to call down fire. You know, God, we're, we're ready to stand up for you. We're ready to, 
to seek vengeance on these people. All three of them needed to learn love. Uh, James and John's mother also is the one that got them in trouble by saying to Jesus, you know, I have a request for you. Would you let my son sit at your right hand and your left hand? Sit in, sit in the, the important seats, the, the right hand, the side of approval, and also on your left hand, you know, so that, that make them your, your chief aides. Uh, didn't make the other disciples very happy, especially somebody like Peter, who's the older one who would have expected to have been in that seat. And remember, we've talked about this before, the disciples are expecting a king and a ruler to set up his kingdom. They're not expecting a uh, sacrifice on the cross and a resurrection to come after that. They are expecting him to throw Rome out of power and they're expecting, and we've said this many times, the disciples are expecting that they're going to be the, the dukes and, the, and all of the, all the royal positions running, running rail, rain, reigning in various provinces. Uh, you know, they're, because they're, we stood with you from the very beginning. We, our reward is going to be, we get this province, he gets this province, and we'll be your, your dukes, we'll be your, your leaders. Now, this is what they're expecting. Uh, and so when Jesus starts talking about a death and a resurrection, it doesn't compute with them. This is, this is not what we signed up for. We, you know, we're, we've put our life on the line for the Messiah who's going to get Rome out of here and establish his kingdom. This is their thought patterns, and we see this as they're hiding after the death and resurrection, and then later on when they finally get bold enough to start preaching the gospel, but we see they never understood. They were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a king. And this is what the Jews were looking for. This is why Jesus to this day is considered a failed Messiah. He did not set up the kingdom. You know, so he claimed to be a Messiah. They'll acknowledge that he claims to be Messiah. But in their mind, he cannot be Messiah because he did not set up the kingdom that is future still. Jesus will return. He'll step on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split at the end of the seven years of tribulation, and he will set up his kingdom at that point that will rule the world, and then he will be the Messiah that they're expecting, the one that comes and gets rid of everybody and starts the kingdom. He didn't do it in their time frame, in their, in their order. Well, all of them, all, all 12 of them are this way. All 12 of them and all the other ones that are the other inner core, probably a couple hundred. The 500 that are going to be seen that Jesus sees after resurrection. The thousands are there just because of the stuff that's, that he's doing in miracles. Then there's a core of a couple hundred people that are what we would say his church. They come and they listen to him. Uh, the disciples are the ones that they're the inner circle. You know, they're... they're they're the inner ones. They're, he's the one that they take. That he takes everywhere. They're the ones getting those special Bible studies. They're the ones hearing all the the, the definitions of all the parables and, and all of this. And then he's got this small group that he seems to take away with him. That is the special ones. They're the ones he's grooming for a special leadership positions. And we see that Peter initially takes charge in the church. Then we see James, the brother of Jesus, get elevated kind of out of nowhere, because James, the brother of Jesus, is not this James. This James is one of the first martyrs that goes up on, on, the, mar, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. John is going to be, he's the youngest of the group, but he's also going to live the longest. He's the one that gets to live until he's about 90-something, and, 
and he's going to be the bishop of Ephesus when, at the time of his death, and he's going to get to train several people into the gospel firsthand. Peter is going to die, uh, but he's also going to be one of the leaders. Peter is considered one of the leaders in the church. And so we have an interesting group that Jesus picks. The oldest, the youngest, the first martyr, the one that lives the longest, uh, somebody who's very boisterous and some guys that are uh, a little less boisterous but, not, but very judgmental. So his, his hand-picked group is a wonderful picture of us. <laughs> okay? And I think that's part of why he picked the group that he did. Didn't really matter how old or young you were, how impetuous you were, or how, how you know, quick-tempered you were, how, long, how strong you were, how weak you were. He kind of picked a mix. And this is something good for us to understand. Jesus handpicked a few people. And he still does to this day. He handpicks people to give them special anointing, special blessings. We, saw, we see Saul of Tarsus, the enemy of Christians, headed out to Damascus to go arrest more Christians and bring them to death. And God says, uh, by the way, Saul, I've got a new job for you. I'm calling you to be my, my chief ambassador. And by the way, Saul, you are going to suffer. You're going to suffer hard because you've, you've caused great suffering. And he uses Saul, who becomes Paul, to preach the gospel. And, you know, very important for us. We see this over and over. And, you know, one of the things that is really striking to me is as I've been looking at the Bible, is how many times God has taken young people and used them. He takes Joseph. 17 years old when he's taken into Egypt to be a slave and spends 13 years in captivity learning. He takes somebody like Daniel. You realize that when Daniel stood up and says, I'm not eating the king's food because I'm not going to pollute my, bi my body, he was somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. How many people do we know that in their 13, 15-year-olds would take a stand for God that strong. There's some handfuls. We, we've read about them. Uh, a young lady in Colorado was 17 years old who made her stand for God. You know, we see them. They're out there. And God tends to use a lot of young people. Jeremiah says, I'm just a youth. Who's going to listen to me? And it's believed that he was in his teens when he was selected to be a prophet. Now, God also, so that we don't feel uncomfortable if you got saved later on, he uses older people. He picked, he picked uh, Moses and called him at age 40. Or actually, excuse me, age 80. Huh? Gideon seems to be younger. Yeah. How young, we don't know. He wasn't old. He wasn't old because he was still living with his father, and his father was being his protector. But that can go on into 30 or 40 in that day and age. But Gideon seems to have been fairly young. Uh, Samson was still very young when he's, when he's lifted up. I mean, God oftentimes... I don't know how old Elijah was when he was chosen. So, uh, and in many cases, we're not told how old people were. You know, he, called, he called Noah at age, five, at age 500. So, I mean, it's... Yeah, you know, don't, don't despair. If you're older, don't despair. God can still call you and use you. <laughs> but he does seem to tend oftentimes to call young people that are willing to take a stand for him. And, you know, it's, what should challenge us as Christians is to challenge our young people 
to live stronger for God rather than all the excuses the world gives them. Well, they're just young. They need to experience the life a little bit before you, you use them. You know, yeah, experience life through God is a much better way to do it than experiencing God, uh, experiencing life through the world and living in things that they're going to regret. Many of our founding fathers were famous in their activities before they were 20 years old. George Washington was doing surveying and leading troops in his teens. Okay, most of our early founding fathers, by the time they were 20 and 30 years old, were already well known in their, in their fields and everything. So, you know, we need to be very careful of saying, well, they're just kids. Who knows what a child can do, given the opportunities and the challenge to do it? And we need to be ready to say, you can do more than you've ever, ever thought of. It was kind of funny last week. I taught the kids Sunday school class. And you know what I did? I taught them just the way I did this. I read a section in Daniel. We talked about what it meant. Not quite as deep as we would here, but I just read the section, told them what it meant and, and, and some interesting facts about it, went to the next section and, and told them what it meant. And it, you know, they were mesmerized by some of what, what they were hearing because I treated them as if they could understand more than most people would have treated them. And, that's, and I literally taught them just like we do these Bible studies. Read a section, discuss it. And I want to challenge our kids because our kids have potential. And the kids that are coming to our church, we need to pray for them because they have hard lives. We've got one young girl that's in our church who's gone through more in her short life of 11 years than most adults have gone through in their entire life. And it's made her question God and everything because of how hard her life has been at such a young age. We need to pray for these kids. They're going through some very hard times and we need to reach out to them in a mighty way and bring them to God because there are some challenges that they're facing. And they have home lives that are going to be against them serving God. And we want to be able to just pray for them and be able to somehow touch them with God's love. And sometimes it's hard to reach them because they're pretty hard in many cases because of the way they lived. But we need to pray for them that God can get hold of their lives because if God gets hold of their lives, oh, the changes that can happen you know, around them and in this town. We see that God touches young people and really motivates them to move forward. But we see these, these three men, the inner circle, they go up on a high mountain apart from everybody. And then it says, And Jesus was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Transfigured. Changed. Now it doesn't tell us how he was changed but it talks about that permanent, the word in Greek talks about the permanent change, which this particular event was not permanent. But it did show them what he's going to be like after his resurrection. And it said that he shone. And it's kind of an interesting thought. He shone out the glory of God. Have you ever seen somebody that is so filled with the Holy Spirit, so excited by God that there is almost a shining about them? It's, it's a wonderful thing when you see it. They're just so filled with God that you could almost see shining, but you just, the radiation of God from them. And you know, each one of us have that in potential in us because the Holy Spirit and God lives in us. Have you ever had somebody say, and you don't even, you don't even have to say anything about their language, but they'll go, oh, I'm sorry. 
I get it a lot now that I'm a pastor. If people know I'm a pastor, they say, I'm sorry, pastor. But even before I became pastor, people used to be, you know, without me saying anything, they go, oh, I don't mean to say that. I had never criticized them for their language. I know that they're not one of God's children. I'm not going to criticize them for their language. But God's spirit coming out draws conviction. Have you ever had people look guilty just because they're near you without you even saying anything? God's spirit coming out of you because he lives in you can bring conviction on somebody just because God's there. And we see here that he was transfigured. It said he was shining. And this word for shining literally means as like the sun. It was so bright that they really couldn't look at him. And it says not only was his face shining, but his raiment, his clothing shone. And I think this was a picture of what they were going to see. John in Revelation describes Jesus standing with a white robe that shines and a, and a shine around him and everything. They saw a picture of who Jesus was in all of his glory. Or at least part of his glory, what glory they could see. Because we still have the same process that Moses had that you can't see God's glory and live, face and live. So they saw whatever amount of glory God the Father allowed them to see. Oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful to see <laughs> Jesus in all of his glory and his light. And then it says, and, and behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, I don't know how Peter, James, and John knew that it was Moses and Elijah, unless Jesus kind of introduced them. Uh, Hi, guys, this is Moses and Elijah. Maybe it was just that as in heaven we will know one another. That's what it's indicating to us, that in heaven we will know each other. We will know everybody up there. We might not know their whole stories, but we will know them. Uh, kind of takes the fun out of it, I guess, getting to know it, but it also makes it easier. You're not going to go, oh, who are you? Yeah. But they knew who they were, and it, they were talking with Jesus. And kind of an interesting pair, Moses, giver of the law. Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 34, which we just finished last night, Moses was the greatest prophet because God spoke with him face to face up until the point of time of the Pentateuch. Elijah. Elijah, one of the two people who did not die in the Bible. He was taken in the chariot, taken straight to heaven, and didn't have to die, which means, imagine how close he had to be to God. Kind of like Enoch. He walked with God and he was not. Two people that had been already raptured into heaven just because just because of what, how, that they were following God so close. Now, when we get raptured at some point, <laughs> hopefully in our lifetime, it'll be because God has taken his church out of this world, not because we're so close to God that we're perfect, as these other guys have been. But we see here two special individuals, Elijah and Moses. Because these two appeared to Jesus on the transfiguration, there are many who believe and I'm not necessarily going to argue with them. I don't believe it, but I'm not going to argue with them that these will be the two witnesses in the period of Revelation. They witness at the temple. And I understand why they say that, because they talk about uh, commanding the rains not to fall and fire coming down from heaven, which is all Elijah's. And they talk about the power of Moses. But, so they, they can make a big case for it. I personally believe that it'll be Enoch and Elijah because it says in Scripture that it's appointed in a man once to die and after that the judgment. And they're the only two people that have not died. 
That's my logic for it. I can understand, and I, I can understand Moses and Elijah, and I'm not, they make a very strong case, and I can believe it. I can understand why they do it. I just believe that it's going to be the two people who haven't died, and they'll have that opportunity to die. Uh, who's right? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But they make this strong case because Moses, representing the law, Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets, which, again, is another convincing reason for them to be that. But these two come and they talk to Jesus. You know, and it could have been something like, oh, wow, we're so glad to see you again. We, you know, we've missed you these, these, these years that you've been down here. Because remember, Jesus came from heaven, and they've been up in heaven, so they've, they've been talking with him. They've been hanging out with him and talking with him in heaven, and they get to be the ones that come down. And then we see here in verse 4, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I kind of like that. It's excellent. It's exceedingly good for us to be here. If you will, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, in, in the book of Mark, the story of the, of the transfiguration, uh, chapter 9, it says in there that Peter, because he didn't know what to say, <laughs> said, shall we cre create these tents for you or booths? Yeah, and I love it in, in Mark. It's like Peter just had to say something. How many times is Peter like us? We have nothing really that we need to be saying, but we just have to say something. We have to get the last word in. We, we have to put our two cents worth in a, in a conversation. You know, one of the great arts is to learn to be silent when it's appropriate and speak when it's appropriate. Many times as a teacher, I've had to sit in listening to somebody else and going, wow, I just really want to say something, and it's just not the right time to say it. And sometimes it is. You just have to listen to God. But there's times when you just don't say it, you know, because usually if you say it, you're stealing somebody's point that they're getting ready to make or going to lead it down some other path. And so a lot of times it's just better for a, especially a teacher to stay silent when somebody else is teaching. And I've done that many times, unless I'm asked point blank. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, you, what do you think? You know, and I'll, go, and I'll get in there. And I had, believe me, I had to learn the hard way. When I was younger, I took over many Bible studies from poor teachers that, that were just learning how to be teachers. And I'd make my point to the next thing, you know, I'm teaching the lesson and they're, they're not teaching anymore. So I had to be very careful uh, because I don't want to take over from somebody else's teaching. Sometimes a point needs to be made. Sometimes a correction needs to be made. But it needs to be made gently and correctly, not in an attacking way. But I love this. You know, and in Mark it says, Peter, because he didn't know what else to say. You know, hey, God, it's really good that we're here. Number one, that was the first really crazy statement because it's almost like, uh, well, I'm glad you picked us. We're better than everybody else. We get to see this really special event and none of the other None of the other 12 are getting to see this. God, you could have picked any of us, and you picked us three. Wow, we're special. And who knows why Jesus picked them. And he seemed to keep picking them each time. And as you read the scriptures, these are the names you read. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, or John. <laughs> now, we see at the Last Supper that John has his, is laying and reclining on Jesus you know, because of the way the table's set up. Uh, we see all the specialness of these people. And they were close to Jesus, and he was pouring extra 
knowledge into them. But you know, the thing about this is when you've given extra knowledge, to whom much is given, much is required. So if you are in the inner circle of a group, then you have a greater degree of accountability before God. And whatever group that you're being given the greater training in. You're given a greater responsibility to live out what you've been taught, to help share what you've been taught. And this is what you're going to see when, you, when we go through all of this, is that it's important. I spent all my time standing around with the men saying, just listening, just listening. How do men of God listen? How do the men of God react? How do, they, how do they input? What do they do? How do they pray? How do they witness? It's very important that we spend time watching others. How do they appropriate God's word and live it out? Which is what we're called to do. Live out God's word in a way that makes people look at us and say, oh, that's how a Christian should react. I think that's what, you know, oh, you're being attacked and you're keeping your mouth shut, just like Jesus did. Or when you do speak, you're like, uh, Stephen just before they stone him and you give the gospel infuriating the people to the point where they're really ready to throw those rocks uh, but we see over and over there's a time to speak time to be silent a time to act correctly and a time to speak and we need to be able to listen to the spirit and know the difference and it's not easy to know the difference which is why we watch how do others people do it and, you know, I was very fortunate. I got to watch my dad because when my dad got saved, he, my dad doesn't do anything halfway. He went 200% into being a Christian. And when he read the word, he followed God's word as, to the best of his ability. And I got to watch somebody who honored authority, who was very strong in what he did and followed. And it was a great example to me. And then I tried to be that example to my kids. Now, was my dad perfect? Absolutely not. Was I perfect? Absolutely not. But my kids got to see a different lifestyle than they would have seen anywhere else. And I'm hoping that they are now going to live it out in front of their crowds as they're now doing their own life. And each one of them have made some mistakes as they're going along and they're getting a, a halfway start. But at the same token, they've all said to me the same thing, except for one. You know, I never knew how much I learned at home until they started seeing how little other people know. And this is something that's very important. Those of you sitting in this room who think maybe, um, I don't really know that much. Well, I'm telling you, just by sitting in these Bible studies, you're learning more than most Christians out there and puts you in a place where you could actually be teaching other people if, you, if God calls you to because of the things you've learned. And you've learned a lot more. And you've learned a lot from the other pastors that you've listened to, hopefully. <laughs> But the challenge is to live out what we're taught. Uh, and I love it because this is how good pastors take their people and, and grow them. They take them under the wing and say, let me show you how to live this life and how to witness, how to pray, how to study. Let's challenge you to step out beyond your comfort zone and I'm going to lead you <laughs> in how to do it. I'm going to show you how to do it. And this is all very important things. And, you know, Peter's saying, hey, it's good that we're here. And Jesus, if you want, we'll build, we'll build you some tabernacles right here. We'll, you know. And in this case, he's being honest. He just wants to sit there while they are sitting in their little tents, their little shade, just listening. Could you imagine what it would be like to just sit and listen to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? 
what kind of conversation would they have? You know, Moses, oh, you know, it was so wonderful watching you. You put me through a lot of hassle with those people, but man, I loved watching your power. Elijah, man, it was wonderful the way you kept showing your power and, and all of this. And Jesus just being loving to them and saying, yep, I, it was wonderful working with you guys. You know, can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven? Just spending time listening to all the people that we read about. Listening to the stories of all the people that gave their life as martyrs. Listening to the stories of maybe people we don't even know now and how God used them. But you know what? If you've done anything for God, there are going to be people wanting to listen to your story as well in heaven. Tell me about how God used you. What did God do through you? How many people did you get to tell about Jesus? How did God use you? We've got a story to tell. And we do. If we are saved, we have a story. The old hymn, I have a story to tell to the nations that will turn men's hearts to the Lord. We all have a story if we have Jesus Christ in our heart. And that story will be told both through words and through the way we live, as long as we're following God. And it's important that we look at this. Does my life reveal Christ? Most of the time. <laughs> it's, it's never going to reveal him all the time. But when people look at you, do they say, now there's somebody who lives differently from the rest of the world. There's somebody that says something and they live it out. The worst thing you can be doing is say something and not live it out. Because then they look at you and say, boy, what a hypocrite. That's just another one of those Christian hypocrites. The greatest testimony that you can have is, I live out, that person lives out what, they, what God's word. They are different. I respect them. I may not agree with them. I may not even like them. But I respect that they live what they believe. And live it out. Don't talk about people behind their backs. Build them up. Edify them. Don't tear them down. You know, love people. Be kind. Let God be your defender. All the things that we learn in the scriptures, we want to practice and do. Then while, while Peter is speaking in verse 5, it says, While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. A bright cloud. And it literally speaks of light emulating from the cloud. Now I haven't seen many clouds that light comes out of. I've seen many clouds that reflect the light. And may even shine brightly, but I don't think I've ever seen a, a cloud that literally shines within itself. But you know, this is an interesting statement because in Exodus 19, God's cloud covers Mount Sinai and lightning and, and light flash out of that cloud and it shines forth. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and God is shining out of the cloud so much so that when, when Moses comes down off the hill, it says his face shone. He was so close to God for those, well, technically 80 days, because it was 40 the first time and 40 the next time, 80 days on the mountain that he literally shone with the presence of God. I have met some Christians that you could just almost see a shining from them. You know that God is indwelling in them because of how much of him is coming out. And here we see a shining cloud envelops them. Basically blinding them, not completely, but you know, keeping them from, from hearing. And it says, a voice came out. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. 
Now that should sound somewhat familiar because it's the same words that came out of the sky when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. This is the father's testimony of his son. This is my son. I'm pleased in him. He's doing everything that I want him to do. And think about this. Jesus, part of the Trinity, offered to the Father to go down and redeem mankind. Before mankind was created, and we've got to get this in mind, before God created man, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create man, man's going to sin, and Jesus, I'd like you to go and redeem them. You're going to have to die. You're going to have to face the ultimate punishment of being separated between us, from us, for us to redeem man, because that's what it's going to cost. And Jesus said, yes. In Revelation, he's described as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other places, he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, which is why we can say before everything was even started, they had agreed that they were going to create man, man was going to sin, and Jesus was going to come and redeem us. That blows my mind away that God would do this. Create us knowing that we were going to fail. Knowing that part of the Trinity was going to have to pay the ultimate sacrifice and die for our sins. That is just a mind-boggling thought. To me, anyway. Maybe it doesn't boggle everybody else's mind, but to me, it's mind-boggling. And then he creates the world in man anyway. Man falls and Jesus comes. And twice the audible testimony from God is, this is my beloved son. I love him. He's mine. And I'm pleased in what he's doing. Listen to him. At the beginning of his ministry and now close to the end of his ministry. Remember, we've said recently that he's closing in. This is getting down to the last months of Jesus' life. And it's kind of interesting that 60% of all four Gospels are the last month of Jesus' life, and most of it is the last week of Jesus' life. You, know, you want to talk about how important it is, you've got to think about that. You know, most of the Gospel is about the last few days of Jesus' life because of how important it was. That was his whole reason to come to this world. He didn't come to this world just to live. He came to die for mankind and resurrect. The power and the reason that he came. Isn't it wonderful? If, you can ever, if you've ever known what God wants you to do, it's a wonderful thing to know that God wants you to do something. I have always known since I was a teenager that I was going to be a pastor. It took a long time for it to happen, but I knew that I was going to be a pastor. I knew God had called me to be a pastor. I went to Bible school, and then I had to learn. I've always been a teacher, but I had to learn to love people. Because when I was a teenager and a young adult, I didn't like people. Literally, didn't like people. If I didn't have to deal with people, it didn't hurt my feelings. So what did God do? He made me a manager of a restaurant where I had to deal with customers and employees all the time. Yeah, God has a sense of humor in getting us ready for, for what he wants us to do. Yeah. He put me right in the middle of a place where I had to treat people with respect and learn to make them happy, give them, get them. So he learned, taught me to love people. 
It's taken a long time, but he's taught me to love people. And you know, sometimes I regret that he ever taught me to love people because when you love people, it hurts. Because if you care about what they do and how they live and they don't do it, <laughs> you hurt almost as much as they do because you know how much they're going to hurt. And you're just thinking, well, if you had just listened, you wouldn't have had to have gone through what you're going through. With my kids, I've done so many times where, kids, if you would just, you know, I've taught you this all your life, and you're, you're still doing the things I told you not to do, you know, you know. But, you know, as human beings, we tend to have to learn the hard way about things. We, we like the school of hard knocks for whatever reason. Uh, well, I just didn't believe you. I just thought you were, you know, it was just you. Now I find out it was me too and everybody else that I know that's done it. Here he is, he's overshadowing them and saying, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased in him. And what did the disciples do? They fell on their faces. <laughs> I love the scriptures. Now, we sing the song, I Can Only Imagine. Okay, and it's, will I dance before you? Will I stand before you? Will I fall on your face? Well, I can tell you the answer to that. Especially the first time you see God and Jesus, you will fall on your face. Because everybody in the scriptures who sees an angel, sees God, who is in his presence, falls on their face. And I hope that we never get beyond that, even in heaven. That when we stand in the presence of God, that we don't, don't fall on our face. We never lose that awesomeness of God. Now hopefully we can stand in Jesus' presence without necessarily doing that. But when the Father's presence, I think we're going to fall on our face for all of eternity. Now he may tell us, go ahead and get up. But when we stand in front of the awesomeness of God, all through scriptures, everybody falls on their face. Daniel sees the vision, falls on his face. Isaiah sees the vision, falls on his face. John sees the vision of Christ and God in, in Revelation, falls on his face. Uh, everywhere in scriptures, people fall on their face in the presence of God. And I really expect that when we first, especially those first couple times we stand before him, we're going to fall on our face. Is that a natural act or just the power knocking you? I think it's the power knocking, knocking them down. I don't think they have any choice. I'm not sure that there is any choice in the matter. It's just God is so, so overwhelming. Nothing they would do out of respect. They just, just... Maybe both. Maybe both. A lot of churches, they have what they call being slain in the spirit, where they, they get so engulfed in the presence of God that they fall down. And I think if you get used to God's presence, you won't be overwhelmed by his presence when it comes on you. And I, and I know that there are some people that it is a true experience for them. They get, all of a sudden, they get touched by the Holy Spirit, and they go flat down on their, on their face because they're overwhelmed by the spirit of God, which also says they're not spending much time with God. Or they're getting so overwhelmed. And I've had times when I have just seen and felt the presence of God so heavy that it is, makes you numb and makes you just very, uh, almost woozy. And we're told to be filled with the Spirit and not with wine. Now wine makes us able to lose control. And what did they say when the, the disciples were filled on the, by the Holy Spirit? They're drunk. You know, they're acting like they're drunk. Now, I don't know why when they spoke in different languages they were considered to be drunk, but we'll leave that part out. But there was this something about them that made people wonder if they were drunk. And there is this idea of being drunk with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit rather than wine. Does the Spirit control our actions? He's supposed to. We may end up saying things that we, never, we don't understand. We may do things that we don't understand. And 
we then meet somebody who says, that's just what I wanted to say. I, I asked God to have those words said to me or, or see something. It was their fleece, and all of a sudden, you're part of their fleece. Where you say something that just doesn't make sense, and then going, oh, God did speak to me. I guess now i got to listen. Something very little and simple. If God says to do something, go ahead and take the chance to look like a fool for Christ. Because it may just be what somebody needs to see. Go to talk to somebody that you would never talk to and give them the gospel. We've had uh, the testimonies from people sharing that you know, they go up to the roughest, hardest looking guy and, and that's the person that responds the best to the gospel message. We never know what it is. We need to be bold in, the, in Christ. Not, not obnoxious, not, not doing things like that, but when God says to do something, take a step of faith and do it. Live for Christ. Be that person who stands up for him. Believing takes you into the name and claim it. If I believe something, I can, I can get in. It also takes you into the world's point of view of if you think it, you can achieve it, which comes, uh, is very famous for people. Always remember it's actually by faith that we receive things. Not, not well, just faith. I'm not even going to say positive faith. Not believing necessarily, but that faith. God, I'm going to step out. Because I can tell you many times I've stepped out in faith not believing. Okay, when I first started giving my tithes, it's like, okay, God, I don't know how you're going to be able to make my ends meet because I can't make them meet already. But you said to do it, so I am going to do it. I stepped out in faith and watched God reward the faith. Does, is faith, uh, does it stand by itself or is trust a component of faith? The reason I ask that, Pastor, is I read a commentary not uh, too long ago where, in essence, they said, well, faith is great, you need it, you need to know about it and everything, but the thing that gets you the closest to Christ is trust in him. I know what they're saying, but I know what they're saying in that statement. And by what I think they're saying, I would agree. Faith just by itself is not worth anything. I have to step out, which call trust, uh, uh, confidence, uh, hope, whatever, whatever term you want to use, I could believe that God's going to do something and, have, and say I have faith. But until I step out, and this is what James brings out, until I step out and do something with my faith, it's worthless. I could say I believe God's going to bless me all day long and bless, bless my giving, but until I step out and give him my 10%, I could say I believe it all day, and I might in my mind, believe it. But until I step out, trust, step out, confidence, whatever, whatever term you want to use, because I don't know that it's trust until you find out that it works. So I would just say you're stepping out hoping that it is true. Well, then going one step further, like we're being taught the way the master and everything, when we get to the point with these folks, when we get to believing, should we always include that trust element with it? I I believe so because it is truly believing through the biblical way, which is absolute trust. And I will almost always bring out the fact that it is trust in such a way that if it's not true, you have no other hope. And this is the trust I have in Jesus. If he is not true, if his word is not true, if he did not die, resurrect, and, and keep his word, then I have no hope. I don't have a plan B in the back of my mind saying, well, if Jesus isn't true, then this is my fallback position. I have absolute 100% all my eggs in one basket 
if he is not true, then I'm without hope. I, and the wonderful thing is, in all the years I've walked with him, he's always been true. Every promise that he's made has been true. He's given me peace. He's given me joy. He's given me uh, direction. He's, you know, everything about it has been just what he said I'd have. And this is my strongest proof that he is going to take me to heaven is because his promises down here have all come true. Have I lived a perfect life with no trouble? Absolutely not. But he never promised that. He's just promised to be there in the trials and the tribulations. So I can tell people, and this is why one of the things when you're witnessing and somebody says, well, I don't believe that, you know, in the, in the afterlife, I don't believe in God. And the, one of the strongest questions you can ask, but what if you're wrong? Because that makes them think. And as I've said in the class, if you say, but what if you're wrong, be ready for them to ask you, what if you're wrong? And for me, I can tell them, I've lost nothing by following Christ because I have lived a life that has been wonderful. Because of his promises, you know, I've lived a wonderful life. Have you lived a wonderful life in this life? And most of them will say no. I go, because of he's been true in this life, I know, <laughs> I know that he will be true to his word in the afterlife. He says it's there, he's promised it's going to be there, and he's promised that it's going to be there. So yes, trust becomes a very integral part, even with faith. You, you have to have a belief that actually can step out and say it's true. Great example is, and, I, and this one I like because I've done repelling, and I remember the day when I had to put my whole weight on that line as I was going down the vertical wall. I could believe all day long that that rope is going to hold my weight. I can say I have faith that this rope is going to hold my weight. I can say I'm absolutely sure that this rope is going to hold my weight, but until I start going down that wall and put all my weight on that rope, I'm not proving that I believe it. If I go, no, I don't think I'll do that. I don't know that I trust that rope. I give several different examples of a person in the burning building, three stories up, jumping out into the fire. Yeah, you have to trust that that's going to... But faith has to have that stepping out. And this is why Jesus' statement is, you know, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, and list down all these mighty, you know, wonderful Christian, godly, righteous, religious works that they did. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you, because you never put your faith in me. You did all these things. Why? Probably because they wanted, you know, here's my list of check marks. God, I, I have 99 check marks and three bad marks. You know, I should be in. I should be in. He goes, depart from me, I never knew you. You didn't put your trust in me. You put your trust in your works. Many people sitting in our churches in this country and around the world probably are putting their trust in their good works, not in Jesus. They don't step out ever to say, God, are what you saying true? You know, Jesus, I accept you. And they say a prayer, but they don't mean it. Many churches tell you to try Jesus. You know how many people have tried Jesus? And if you try Jesus, it doesn't work because you're trying him. We're telling people, you put all of your faith in Jesus to be one of his, and he is everything he says he's going to be, but you have to put all of yourself in. You know, your gamble is, you know, if you want us to call it a gamble, you put all your chips on, the, on Jesus. You, know, you, have no, you have no secondary thing. If, if he's not true, you've lost the hand and you're out of the game. All right? This is one of the reasons why I have more respect for people who choose a religion that's wrong 
than I do with the people that, especially in America, that are making their own religion, taking bits and pieces of several religions. I like this, I like this, I like this, I like this. See, I've got my own religion. I've created my own God. I have no respect in it. The people that have chosen some other religion, they're wrong, but they're putting, they're putting all their trust in that religion, and I have a respect in that. I'm still going to give them, the, give them the gospel of Christ and try to get them out of where they're at, but I have a lot of respect that they have chosen something to put their chips in. They're all in. They're all in wrong and going to lose, but they're all in. Rather than somebody says, well, I like what Buddha says here and Mohammed says here, and Jesus has a few things I like, I'm going to include them, and the Hindus have a few things, okay, and they get this mash of religious beliefs that they, and what have they done? Basically, it said, I'm God. I'm going to determine what's right and wrong. And instead of picking a God and following that God, again, they picked the wrong God, unfortunately, and I can show them why, why Christianity is different from everything they believe, but I still have more respect they're following something and they're putting they're all in for that one and the disciples have fallen on their face they've been overwhelmed by God and it says and then Jesus said in verse 7 and Jesus came and touched them and said arise and do not be afraid the word here for afraid is somebody who wants to run somebody who wants to run away this isn't just being afraid he says, don't be afraid. You're, you're so afraid now that you're ready to run. Yeah. How many times when you've been out sharing the gospel, giving your testimony, especially those first couple of times, you start walking to the person and you're just ready to turn the other way. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm going to do this. And you, you have a choice at that point. Continue forward and, and open your mouth or walk away from them. Walk away from the appointment that God gives you. Very important. Don't be afraid. All through scriptures we're told, be not afraid. Fear not. The word fear is in the Bible about 1,400 times. And about one-third of the time it's just a very statement, no, no judgment whatsoever. It is, they were afraid. They trembled, they quaked, they were afraid. The other third of the time it is, be, fear not. The other third is fear God. The only thing we are to be afraid of or fear is God. And that's a reverence of him. Why? Because of how powerful he is. He can take our life. He can do what he wants with our life. And that's what we're, we go before him with a fear and trembling. This is the most powerful being that we can stand before or fall on our face before, whichever the case might be. And it says, be not to fear him. Other than that, we're not to fear why? Because God is with us. God is with us. We're not to fear. And what, what, what do we, when we are afraid, what are we really afraid of in most cases? We're afraid of what might happen. And that is something we're presuming on the future. Who holds the future in his hand? God. I am firmly convinced that fear is actually a form of idol worship. I'm placing what may happen higher than God. And God says, I'm in control. What are you worried about? Now, if he's in control, I have nothing to worry about. And you know what? He is in control. I have nothing to worry about because no matter how much I worry about it, if it's my time to go to heaven, I'm going to heaven. If it's my time to be hurt, I'm going to be hurt no matter what I do about it. And God will use that to glorify himself. 
If it's my time to get to witness and, and stand strong for God, then I'm going to get to stand strong for God. If it's my time to fall flat on my face and, and sin, it's my turn to fall flat on my face and make the wrong decisions. But no amount of worrying about it is going to change it. No, matter, no amount of fearing on it is going to change it. Fear is something that I totally believe is sin. Now, is there a fear that causes flight? Yes. You know, if something's chasing, attacking me, then there, there's a level of fear that says go hide or fight. Okay? And that's more terror in my case than fear in my thought. It's a different, kind of different fear. It's not I'm worried about, but uh, okay, this, this guy's got a gun right in front of me. That's something to think, okay, do I fight? Do I run? Do I try to calm him down? That's, that's, real. that's a real event. But even then, I'm not going to be worrying about, I'm not to worry about what might happen. It's an emotional, it's an emotional survival flight, fight or flight mechanism. But again, you know, I have actually been in, in the, looking down the barrel of a gun on three occasions, and it is a nervous, nervous place to be. Only one guy scared me because he was, he was very scared and he was shaking and I was praying that the gun didn't have a hair trigger because he was scared. I spent more time trying to calm him down in the robbery than anything else. The rest, they were calm as cucumbers and it was easy to stare down their gun. Uh, but you know, I was not afraid at any of those points in time because I knew God was in control. You know, this guy was committing a sin and doing something stupid, but God was still in control. And this is why he says, he says, don't be afraid. You, you know, don't be afraid. And then it says, they lifted up their eyes and nobody was there but Jesus. Have you ever been in a place where you've been so close to God that you kind of lose track of everything else and you kind of come to your, to your senses and it's just, you know, before it was like you, God, and the heavens, and the next thing you know, it's just you. It hasn't happened to me a lot, but there's been a couple of occasions where that's happened. A couple of times in prayer, a couple of times in worship, uh, a couple of times when studying God's word, where it just almost seemed like I was in heaven for probably not long. It seemed like a long time when it was then, but, but it, you look back and you're, you're still singing the same song that you were singing when you, when you, when you kind of disappeared. And, and all of a sudden, it's a, kind of a disappointment. You know, oh God, I was, I was in your presence and here I am. You know, Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and, lift, high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and then the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah is in the presence of God. And it takes him a long time to write it, but I, I could almost picture it. He got done with it. He came out of that vision. And he's going, oh man, it was only less than a minute. How... How God, you know, could have been so short? Oh, I love just the little pictures I've had of it. I can't imagine what it's going to be like forever. Yeah. I cannot picture just sitting around playing a harp, you know, but I can picture being in God's throne room for the first couple thousand years, <laughs> just excited about worshiping God in the throne room. You know, I don't care about my I don't care about the mansions. I really don't care about all you guys, but here I am in front of the God that I've been worshiping and fallen in love with. And here I am in his presence. Maybe be ten thousand years, a hundred years, a thousand years, I don't know, but 
though that first part is going to seem like nothing, to be in his presence and truly worship. And this is why I'm hoping that you guys have experienced this in your worship, in your prayer time, because he will give us those little tastes, just a glimpse of heaven and his presence and say, here it is. Here's what you're... Maybe it's because I'm getting older. Maybe I don't know why it's happened, but it's happened several times and it's taken me most of my life to get there. And I think he just gives us that little glimpse. Here's, here's what you're getting ready for. Here it is. Get ready for it. I didn't either the first time. All I knew is, man, I just had a special... Wow, is that what heaven... And that, my, that was my thought. Is that what heaven's going to be like? This feeling is what heaven's going to be like? God, give me more. Yeah, it was like just beautiful. But not in a worldly sense of beautiful. Not even a vision. It was more of a feeling. Yeah, a feeling. I, I didn't see heaven. I just felt. Yeah. I felt that I was no longer here for just... A, just a, it was only seconds. It felt like longer when I was there. But you know, what glory it's going to be. And that should challenge us to go forward with God, to just fall in love with him. One of the things I don't like being a worship leader is that I don't get to just worship. Uh, every once in a while I forget what I'm doing and you all hear it when I don't sing the right words because I'm trying to sing them from memory because I'm worshiping. And I hope you all get to that point where you just lose yourself in worship and just fall before God and just glory in his presence. Glory in his presence and where he is. And they only saw Jesus, which they make it sound like that was a depressing thing, but I mean, yeah, they only saw Jesus. <laughs> yeah, if, only I, if only I saw you, God, I would be very happy. But I also understand what it was. This was a special time. They had stepped out of this world. They saw Jesus glorified. And this is part of what they were seeing. They only saw Jesus. He was no longer without a glorified appearance. They no longer saw Elijah and Moses. All they saw was the Jesus that they'd been hanging out with for, for you know, three and a half years. And, but I just kind of like it. They, then they saw no man save Jesus only. <laughs> Jesus, you're the only one here. <laughs> uh, it just strikes me as funny. I mean, I know what it's saying. It's only we were reduced from this God. We're seeing you in your glory, and we're seeing Elijah and Moses, and now all we see is what we've been seeing. Yeah, we've seen you for all. Yeah. Years. We've seen you for three and a half years, and now we see you again. But we've got that glimpse of the glorified Jesus. And oh, that we can get that glimpse of the glorified Jesus, the, the power of God, the, the wonder of God, and just step out. When we witness, when somebody comes to Christ, there's rejoicing in heaven. And, you know, this is an amazing thing. When somebody changes their address from earth to heaven through the, through the Spirit of God, there's rejoicing. Rejoicing in heaven because that's what we were created for. We were created to be in fellowship with God and there's rejoicing in heaven. And, I, and the angels don't even know why they're rejoicing. They just know that another person's come back to God and that the Father's happy, so they rejoice. The Bible is clearly illustrated that the angels are watching us with great interest. It appears that they were not given the chance to be redeemed. When a third of the angels fell... That was it. No redemption for them. Man falls and God immediately puts a plan in, in place to redeem us. And the angels look and say, what's different about these creatures? Because right now we're below the angels, but we are going to rule. We are going to be above the angels for eternity. 
an amazing place, an amazing turnaround. And we want to get used to this idea. And we're going to end here. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you, for your challenge to be filled with your spirit and to move forward with you. Help us to follow you in what you would ask us to do. Help us to seek after you in all that we do. And Lord, if there's anybody that's listening that doesn't know you, we ask that they will recognize that they're a sinner and deserve hell and that they will put their whole trust in you and nothing else but you and, and accept you as their Lord and Savior and to follow you in your, in your son's precious name. Amen.